Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Dead Reckoning from 1947. The studio is Columbia Pictures. The release date was January 15, 1947. The running time, 100 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Malden from his classic movie guy gives it 3 out of 4 stars. His synopsis is Humphrey Bogart's fine as a tough World War II veteran solving a soldier buddy's murder. Well-acted drama. Now, I believe I first saw this on TV when I was on a Bogart kick a long time ago. I was scouring the newspaper listings for anything with bogey. This was part of a film noir DVD package I picked up in the mid-aughts. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Of course, Humphrey Bogart. And he plays Rip Murdoch. What a great name. Now, I've already covered Bogart's career from my past episodes, like The Maltese Falcon and The Desperate Hours. From The Maltese Falcon until Dead Reckoning, Bogart was one of the top-named actors in Hollywood. His best-known films in that six-year span were All Through the Night, Casablanca, Sahara, To Have and Have Not, and The Big Sleep. Elizabeth Scott plays Coral Chandler. As I will cover, Scott was a dead ringer for Bogart's equally famous wife, actress Lauren Bacall. Dead Reckoning was only Scott's third film, and it was her big break. Her previous two films were You Came Along with Robert Cummings and The Strange Loves of Martha Ivers, which featured Barbara Stanwyck, Van Heflin, and Kirk Douglas in his film debut. The director, John Cromwell. Cromwell started on Broadway in 1912 before transitioning to film in the late 1920s. His best-known films prior to Dead Reckoning included The Prince of Zenda, which came out in 1937 with Ronald Coleman, Algiers with Charles Boyer from 1938, Anna and the King of Siam from 1946 with Irene Dunn and Rex Harrison, Since You Went Away from 1944, and The Enchanted Cottage from 1945 with Dorothy McGuire. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So Dead Reckoning kind of followed a standard post-war film noir trope about a returning serviceman who is trying to find their way after going through hell, which of course is war, and then often finding that home life is far more complicated than fighting overseas. Some other film noir plot standards include flashback scenes, the femme fatale, mobsters, or underworld figures. They're often at night, and there's lots of narration. For this film, Bogart was loaned out by Warner Brothers to Columbia Pictures. This was still the era of the studio system where the stars were contracted to single studios. Because of the deal, Bogart got to approve the director of the film, and he chose John Cromwell. Cromwell, years earlier, gave Bogart a stage role for a Broadway play, and Bogart kindly replayed the favor years later with Dead Reckoning. Now, Dead Reckoning was originally intended to be a starring vehicle for Rita Hayworth, who gained fame as the ultimate femme fatale in the film Gilda, co-starring Glenn Ford, which came out a year prior to Dead Reckoning. Plus, appearing with a rising star and an established star like Bogart would have been a dynamic deal at the box office. However, Hayworth got into a fight with Columbia over terms of her contract, and she refused to make Dead Reckoning. She instead starred in Orson Welles' film The Lady from Shanghai, which is great as well. And this is why Elizabeth Scott was brought in to play the female lead. The studios didn't mind that Scott was often compared to, of course, Bogart's wife, Lauren Bacall. Of course, they had a very similar look and sound to their voices, along with the fact that they were both models prior to becoming actresses. 
Okay, let's get into the film. So it opens with Captain Warren Rip Murdoch, that's Humphrey Bogart, and he's walking the rainy streets one night. He's nervous and avoiding people, especially the police, as he ducks away after seeing a patrol car. He then hides in a church. Father, over here, sir. Yes? Father, I gotta talk to you. I'm a stranger here, and I, I gotta tell somebody about this thing while I can. In case anything happens to me. Happens to you? Why? If you've just listened, sir. I'm sorry it has to be here in the church, but... You're not a Catholic, my boy? No, I'm not. But your father, Logan, aren't you? The jumping padre, always the first one out of the plane. You don't know me, but I've heard about you. See, I'm a paratrooper, too. An ex-paratrooper. Well, now, all the more reason for me to listen. You know, I was just telling Father Dunn. To hear me out, sir. I haven't much time. Oh, what's the trouble, my boy? I'll not only hear you out, I'll help you out. No, you can't. Not in this. You see, right now the cops are after me. Not that I've done anything wrong, Father, but there's a couple of pretty tough customers back of this, and they'd like to get their mitts on me. Probably grab me as soon as I show in the streets again. If I can't work this out, I want somebody to know what happened. For the sake of a friend of mine, to clear his name. What is his name? Uh, Johnny's a pal of mine. He was a paratrooper, too. You see, it's like this, sir. A few days ago, they flew Johnny and me home from France in a stripped-down bomber. Neither one of us had any idea why the Army had suddenly ripped us out of a Paris hospital. We'd been under fancy treatment, me for my shoulder and Johnny for his punctured lung. It's the only high-priority cargo rides a bomb rack all by itself, Father, but why we raided it, nobody could or maybe would tell us. And we climbed out of the Guardia Field to find the welcoming committee with a lieutenant colonel from public relations instead of from the medical corps. He was in a large sweat because we were two hours late due to headwinds over the Atlantic. And Bowling Field, Washington, D.C. was fogged in. But he hoped maybe they'd hold the limit at more than ten minutes. All the way to the Penn Station, I tried to feel out the good desk colonel, but he'd only grin. They'd actually held the limited for us. Somebody sure enough wanted us in Washington, but now. By the time we were rolling into Philly, I was feeling okay. Houses with roofs on them, women with nylons, kids that eat. Can't believe it. Say, when you get on again as a professor at some college and I'm back running my cabs in St. Louis, send me up a prop of an algebra once in a while, will you? Blonde or brunette? Redhead in a sloppy Joe sweater. <laughs> I think you're a great guy too, Rip. If that's what this conversation's about. Huh? Even in the USA, this world. Listen, soldier, you don't have to. Maybe I'll be dropping up to St. Louis now and then for a drink. Careful you don't swallow that pin. Gotta know, nothing good ever really ends. You're dreaming about that blonde again. Remembering how low her voice is. How bad her grammar was at first. And how you taught her English. Yeah. In my life, much simpler. I was just thinking about that girl we saw in the bar. One in blue? <laughs> you don't even know it. What difference does that make? Besides, she looks sad. Well, I'm the comforting type. Johnny, why don't you get rid of the grief you got for that blonde, whoever she is? Every mile we go, you sweat worse with the same pain. Didn't I tell you all females are the same with their faces washed? Say, brother, we're dynamite. Huh? Transportation priority 1A. That's how the big boy, the president, he himself traveled. Where'd you get that? Straight out of Silverleaf. You'll have us both up before a general court pulling stuff like that. At ease, Sergeant. Put them back, Red. What's eating you, Professor? What's wrong with a little reconnaissance? Confidential. This ought to tell us something. Give me those. Okay, Colonel. 
Just a minute, Sergeant Drake. Isn't that my blouse? Yeah, how come, Sergeant? And where'd you get those papers? What goes on here? Come on, speak up, Sergeant. Settle down. The, the papers, uh, your blouse dropped, sir. The, uh, oh, the captain said to hang it up in there. Well, what's the matter with your mouth? What's that? Top personal secret never lets go of it. Six to an even, he swallows it. His senior sorority pin. I was having a peek at your papers and the sergeant rescued them. You mean to say, Captain, you calmly went through my papers? Well, now, look, sir, the war's over. We want to know where we're going and why. We don't like secrets. Well, thank you, Sergeant. Well, I guess I should have known better than try to hold back anything from men who've operated the way you have, back at the enemy lines. I just wanted to give General Steele the pleasure of seeing your faces when you heard it. Steele? Cold Steele? Yeah, it was largely his doing that your recommendation went through. But, Johnny, to get to Congressional? To Congressional? There were certain errors of omission in your report of the incident, Captain. Oh, now, don't tell me those guys in Washington refused to okay it. Those guys, Captain, finally decided to award the Congressional Medal of Honor to Sergeant Drake and the Distinguished Service Cross to the officer who was with him. Now, how's that, bud? The Congressional with a baby blue ribbon. Won't you look pretty standing up there with a the head man? Maybe he'll even let you sit on his piano. With the newsreels grinding. In Technicolor. What's the gripe, Professor? That's the best they've got. There isn't any more. You shouldn't have done it, Rip. Sometimes, chum, you go soft-headed. I'd like to see any blonde do that to me. She's got you crazy. What's the gimmick? Basic grammar. I bet she talks beautifully by now. Think so? <laughs> you got to look like the first time you jump. Oh, now, look, kid, if it's trouble, what? Yeah, we had some, didn't we? Yeah. Not like this, though. Ah, quit living inside there. You can't tell me. I can tell you. I just don't want any metal. Is that all you don't want? Captain Murdoch? On the hoof, son. The camera boys like to get a couple of shots of you and Sergeant Drake. Could you come out on the platform? You only stop here for five minutes. This is the city of brotherly love? That's what New Yorkers call it. They don't live here. I'm all for love, son. Come on, hero. Now, that's an order. Say, Washington hasn't released the story yet. Can you tell me what gives? Well, Sergeant Drake's the story. I'm not. You see, Johnny here. Johnny? Johnny? Sergeant Drake? Johnny had taken a powder. He faked a birth certificate to enlist. John Joseph Preston, eh? Yelpin said so. All I needed was a telephone. Oh, sorry, gorgeous. I didn't see what you looked like. I let you have it, only it's long distance. Oh, hello, Yale. Now, give me a top man there, whatever you call him. What college? Yale, of course. Okay, so it's a university. How would I know? I just run a fleet of taxi cabs. Yeah, one of my men found some kind of a pin with the name of a Yale man on it, class of 1940. I want his address so I can return it to him. Thanks, lovely. With all due respect, General, if you won't authorize me to go after him, I'm afraid I'll have to go anyway. Uh, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I have a, a pretty good idea where he is, but we don't want intelligence messing around in this. Uh, 
I regret to say, say yes. That's right, sir. I refuse. The last address Yale had for John Joseph Preston, class of 1940, was a town I'd never heard of. Welcome to Gulf City, Mr. Murdoch. Murdoch. Oh, yes, sir. There's a room already reserved for you. Oh, it must be another Murdoch. Nobody knew I was coming. Warren Murdoch. That was the name, sir. And from St. Louis. Oh, I don't get it, but I'll take it. It's our best suite, sir. The gentleman who telephoned insisted. Oh? Oh, then it's for me, all right. Front, boy. Geronimo, the paratroopers jump call. It was Johnny, all right. After what we'd been through, we could read each other's minds. He knew I'd want to help and trail him. He'd see me sneak a look at the back of his senior society pen. We'll call later, Johnny's phone message said. That was 10 hours ago. How long is later? What to do in a hot wind smelling of night blooming jasmine except wait and sweat and prime the body to sweat some more. In the meantime, a phone directory might help. I'd never heard of Johnny speak of any relatives, but I was ready to try anything, even a third cousin. Prendergast, Prescott, pressed wood. Stalled again like a jeep on synthetic gas. 48 hours since he called and still no word. I'd pitched the Cardinals into the pennant with my old high school curve and was setting the Red Sox down four to three in the World Series. And suddenly, Johnny's service record came to me like a photograph on my eyelids. He'd enlisted October 11th, 1943. Whatever jam he'd got himself into must have been just before that. And it might have made the local newspapers. Now, if you didn't notice already, the film is told in flashbacks, as Rip is telling the story to the priest and the church he's hiding out in. The priest has also served in the military. Rip wants to find out why his friend and decorated military hero, Sergeant Johnny Drake, jumped off the train and is on the run. Now, we think he's a decorated military hero, and he's played by John Joseph Preston, but again, that's the fun of this film. Rip goes to the library and finds a past newspaper headline from 1943 and determines this particular edition was five weeks before Johnny enlisted. Now, Johnny was accused of murdering a wealthy realtor named Stuart Chandler. Johnny was the English teacher of his much younger wife named Coral, that's Elizabeth Scott. She was a nightclub singer. Johnny, according to the paper, confessed to shooting the husband and then fled. And then he joined the military knowing he'll likely be shipped overseas and thus avoiding a potential prison stint. The police searched, trying to find Johnny, and eventually, well, the whole search just faded away with time. So Rip is confused about whether Johnny would come back to Washington, D.C., knowing that he could be arrested if the police discovered he was back in the States. Rip wants to know the cause of Johnny's return. We can likely guess it's the attractive nightclub singer. Rip monitors the police radio in his hotel room, and hears a call about a burned body being found in a car. So Rip heads to the morgue. Evening. I was wondering if I could take a look in your icebox. Looking for somebody special? Uh, missing persons thought I had to take a squint at your stock. Who's missing? What's their name? What's it to you? Homicide squad. Lieutenant Kincaid. Oh, I thought maybe you was a morgue buff. Buff? A fan and nut like those guys that chase fires. I didn't know homicide men hung out in the morgue. Just where do you come from, mister? Out of town. Frisco. Now, how did you know? The accent. I can spot any accent. What's the name? Zed Wilson, Charlie Wilson. I met him on the train. He kept babbling about suicide, but I thought I'd talked him out of it. We would have dinner last night, but he didn't show, and no word since. 
Yeah, I meant your name. I gave all that to missing persons. Okay, mister. Okay. I'll handle this, Willie. Thanks, Willie. The fish this one, now the gulf. Pass. Hit and run. Nice, too old. What did this Wilson look like? Medium. Medium what? Medium young, medium height, medium weight. Very illuminating. You can call him medium what's left of him. Barracuda got the rest. That's the lot. All the rest empty? Yeah. You're not doing much business, are you, with the one cool spot in town? Fact is, one just came in, but it don't fit your boy. How would you know? You said suicide. I was guessing. Yeah? Well, this one came out of a car smash. You don't want to see him. I might as well blanket the field. His own mother wouldn't know him. He's just crisp as bacon. I can stand it if you can. Okay. It was like a lump of charcoal. Johnny's build. It might be Johnny. He might not. No hardware on him? Wilson had a wristwatch. Not even small change. He'd been cleaned as though somebody didn't want him identified. The only thing my boys picked up was a hunk of melted gold like a tooth. Only it's too big for a tooth and it's got some black stuff on it. Black enamel and gold. Johnny's senior society pen. So Johnny'd taken his last jump. What's it look like to you? Cold bullet? You kidding? Hey, that's an idea. The newspaper boys will go for that thing. Once the electric fan Kincaid's head started churning, he'd check with missing persons and find out I'd never been there, but I wasn't worrying about that. As you can tell from the last clip, the dialogue is really well written, and Bogart delivers the lines beautifully. So Rip's buddy is dead, and it's obvious he was murdered. It's up to Rip to keep digging to find out who would want him killed. The first person that Rip decides to question is named Louis Ord, played by George Chandler, who's a great character actor who you've likely seen if you watch classic films and television. Louis was a nightclub bartender where Johnny's pupil, Coral, sang at. Louie, according to the newspaper Rip found at the library, was a key witness when Johnny was accused of killing Coral's husband. Rip questions Louie about working at the nightclub back in 1943, and his face turns pale when Rip mentions that he was a star witness during Johnny's inquest. When Rip introduces himself, Louie's demeanor brightens as he knows him because of Johnny. Johnny was staying with Louie recently, up to two days prior, but hasn't seen him since. Rip asks if Johnny saw anyone but Louie. Louie says only one person. Coral. Suddenly, Rip hears a sultry, husky voice next to him. It's Coral. In classic film noir style, the camera slowly pans up from her shoes up to her head. Again, she's a dead ringer to Lauren Bacall, the face, the hair, the voice. Rip introduces himself by lighting her cigarette. She's stunned to find out who Rip is and doesn't know where Johnny has been. The nightclub owner requests that Coral sing a song, and she hesitantly agrees. After her performance, she and Rip talk at their table. I see what Johnny meant. You and Johnny. You were together all the time, weren't you? We fought together, two-man team. And spent all your leaves together, London, Paris, Rome, me with a gal always, him without one, just a picture of you in his eyes. Where is he now? Won't you tell me? Where did you see him? Let's dance. 
please, I want to know. Wanted her in my arms when I told her. My right hand on her spine would feel the shock if there was any. She tested pure so far. But so did another girl I knew once right up to the dollar point. And it wasn't four million either. Still wear the same perfume, don't you? Tell me where you saw him. She wears jasmine, he said. Please. He used to call you Dusty. It was sort of a love name you had between the two of you, wasn't it? Tell me where you saw him. On a slab in the morgue, burned to a crisp. I think we'd better sit down. soft as custard when I slugged her with it. But I kept thinking, she has to know something. Take a couple of deep drags. Thanks. I won't do that again. Tell me what happened. Please tell me everything. I promise you're I not won't. feeling ill, Mrs. Chandler. No. No, I feel fine, thanks. It isn't often we have the aesthetic pleasure of seeing Mrs. Chandler dance. It's a pity you stopped. Uh, Mr. Murdoch, this is Mr. Martinelli who owns all this. Mr. Murdoch's no friend of mine from out of town. Any friend of Mrs. Chandler's most welcome here. I'm afraid I don't sing. Perhaps you'd like to try a little roulette. It's probably less than wise of me to tell you, but the house is having a streak of bad luck this evening. Mrs. Chandler doesn't feel like gambling. Oh, I'm all right. Really, I am. I'd like to. You too, sir? I'll just watch. Roulette wheels have a way of running over me. I was walking into something, Father. We were going to gamble hot or cold, win or lose. He hadn't asked her to. He told her she had to. It was an order. But why? And I didn't like the feeling I had about her. The way I wanted to put my hand on her arm. The way I kept smelling that jasmine in her hair. The way I kept hearing that song she'd sung. Yeah, I was walking into something all right. Rip and Quarrel, who he calls Dusty, as it was a nickname Johnny gave her, decides to gamble in the back room. Coral quickly loses $16,000 playing roulette, almost like she wanted to lose. After getting annoyed watching her throw her money away, Rip decides to shoot crap, while the owner of the club, Martinelli, played by Morris Karnofsky, watches. Rip ends up getting all of her money back that she lost, though Martinelli's thug and house boss, Krauss, played by Marvin Miller, tries to change out the dice, which Rip didn't bother to roll, feeling like they were likely loaded. And they were. Snake eyes every time. So speaking of Morris Karnofsky, sadly he was part of the blacklist of the 1950s during the Red Scare. This killed his career in Hollywood, but not his stage career, which had no blacklist, and he became a well-regarded Shakespearean actor. While collecting his winnings, drinks are being brought into Martinelli's office. Louie tries to tip off Rip that his drink has been mickeyed, and if you don't know what a mickey is, for my younger listeners, that means drugged or spiked. Rip knows that he needs Louie healthy and not hurt since he was Johnny's friend. Because of this, Rip finishes the drink knowing that it will knock him out. 
When he wakes up, he's like a zombie in his hotel bed. He's awakened by Coral calling his room. After a brief talk, Rip tells Coral he'll call her back because he's got company. Louie's lying in the other bed, dead, with his neck broken. Rip now knows that Martinelli was involved in the death of Johnny, but still doesn't know why yet. By killing Louie and pinning it on Rip, it's obvious Martinelli wants Rip out of the way because he's getting too close to breaking open the mystery. So Rip dumps Louie's body in, in the large hotel laundry basket before returning to his room, which was timely because two detectives soon arrive at his room as they've been tipped off about a dead body. One of the detectives is the same one that Rip saw at the morgue. Rip does his usual smooth-talking routine and he has all the right answers. The detectives leave and Rip calls Coral and tells her to meet him later that afternoon. Coral waits for Rip in the lobby, but Rip notices that the detective is also in the lobby trying to keep an eye out for Rip. Rip ends up calling the front desk from a phone booth saying that he's from police headquarters. And this subterfuge allows Rip to grab Coral without being tailed. Rip and Coral then take a drive. Well, then I don't see why... You know, the trouble with women is they ask too many questions. They should spend all their time just being beautiful. And let the men do the worry. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking, women ought to come capsule size, about four inches high. When a man goes out of an evening, he just puts her in his pocket and takes her along with him. And that way he knows exactly where she is. He gets to his favorite restaurant, he puts her on the table and lets her run around among the coffee cups while he swaps a few lies with his pal well, I... without danger of interruption. And when there comes that time in the evening when he wants her full-sized and beautiful, just waves his hand and there she is, full-sized. Why, that's the most conceited statement I've ever heard. But if she starts to interrupt, he just shrinks her back to pocket size and puts her away. I understand. What you're saying is women are made to be loved. Is that what I'm saying? Yes, it's, it's a confession that, that a woman may drive you out of your mind, but you wouldn't trust her. And because you couldn't put her in your pocket, you'd get all mixed up. You're right about women being made for love. Yeah. I can see why Johnny loved you. Rip and Coral go to a restaurant for lunch and continue their discussion. Rip knows that Martinelli must have the letter that Louie had from Johnny, which was meant for Rip and was written in code. Rip also tells Coral that Louie is dead. Rip knows that he has to retrieve the letter from Martinelli's office. But Rip's gut feeling is that Johnny isn't the only one that killed Coral's husband and that he was a patsy for the real killer. Coral then tells Rip the real story of what happened the night her husband was killed. She says that Johnny committed to killing Coral's husband to protect her. Coral's husband was deeply jealous and drunk one night and started beating Coral. Johnny had followed Coral home from the nightclub and saw what was going on. He intervened and the husband pulled a gun. During the struggle, the gun went off and Coral's husband was dead. Coral passed out and when she woke up, Johnny was kissing her. Now Rip isn't entirely convinced of Coral's story. He wants the letter before coming to a conclusion. They go to the house of a safe cracker named McGee. After informing McGee, whose safe he was wants to crack... Well, McGee flatly turns down the offer as he knows Martinelli is a powerful mobster. However, Coral asks if McGee can teach Rip how to crack a safe. Well, he agrees to do at least that. Rip and Coral then leave, and Rip lets her in on a secret. Opening the back of your car. The back? The trunk compartment. Louis Ord's body's back there.
How long have you been driving, lady? I didn't see the signal, not too, too late. It was my fault, officer. Let's see your driver's license. I just told her something that startled her. Must be here. I know it is. It better be. Unless you want to come along to the station house. It isn't here. It just isn't here. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I guess we're hooked. She must have left it in some other bag. That's the standard answer, mister. On our way to the station house, do you mind stopping for the mayor's office? We got a date with his honor. Oh, he's your pal, I suppose. Never saw him in my life. But he told me on the phone that if I got Mrs. Chandler there by 4 o'clock, he'd marry us. That's what I just told her when we went through that stop signal. Yeah. Is that a fact? And, and I hardly know him. Okay. Get along with you. Lady. I said yes. Some more quick thinking by Rip. Rip decides to place a phony distress call to the police about a break-in at Martinelli's beach house. The idea is to get Martinelli out of his regular place in order for Rip to get into Martinelli's safe and possibly retrieve the letter. Rip enters the house and doesn't even need to break into the safe. It's already open. Rip goes through the contents, but there's no letter. Rip then searches the rest of the office and finds a paper that shows Martinelli attempting to crack the code of the actual letter. Rip then picks up a book about code cracking, and the letter ends up falling out. Then there's a knock at the door, and Rip is hit in the back of the head with a blackjack, knocking him out. When he wakes up, Martinelli and Krauss are standing over him. Rip refuses to divulge what's in the letter, and Martinelli instructs Krauss to beat him into talking. Rip takes a vicious beating, but refuses to talk. Rip, however, has a trick up his sleeve to get out of this predicament. And what is that trick, you may ask? Well, it's up to you to find out. The final 30 minutes are terrific, filled with twists and turns, and has an outcome, well, you likely won't guess. Now, if you're into film noir and or Humphrey Bogart films, I think you'll enjoy this one. Plus, as I mentioned earlier, the dialogue is top-notch and acted brilliantly by Bogart. All right, a fun fact. In the train scene, after they discover that Drake is to receive the Medal of Honor, Murdoch then quips that maybe the president will let Drake sit on the top of his piano. Now, this is a reference to the then-scandalous photo of Harry Truman playing piano with a leggy blonde on top that was taken at the National Press Club in 1945. And who was that blonde, you might ask? Lauren Bacall. All right, we have two special guests, both of whom love classic films, one especially loves Bogart, the other one not so much, but again, loves classic films. That would be Samantha, and then it's followed up by the great DJ Metal Mike Tyler from ThatMetalStation.com, who you can hear every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So let's talk to them, and I'll be back next week with yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Samantha. Welcome back, Samantha. Hi, thanks for having me again. <laughs> of course. And uh, so... You hadn't seen Dead Reckoning before. No. The obvious question would be, would you have rather seen Lauren Bacall instead of Elizabeth uh, Scott <laughs> as the main actress? Or would you have rather seen Rita Hayworth because Ooh. she was the original choice, actually? Yeah. Oh, and it's so funny. I mean, it probably was a huge thing at the time how much um, 
Elizabeth Scott looks like Lauren Bacall. And sounds like her. And sounds. Her voice, when she started talking, I was like, this is too much. Is this really just a coincidence? Um, But I thought, you know, she was a good actress, but I think it would have been fun to see Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart together. They were a good duo. Yeah, I wonder, was Rita Hayworth the first pick? I was reading something about that. She she was because uh, Bogart always always was successful at the box office, and so was Hayworth at the time. Yeah. So I guess they got into a contract dispute, and so oh, okay with uh, Columbia, and so then she for, she refused to make the film, and then they had to go with uh, Elizabeth Scott. Yeah, I would have. I think I would have maybe preferred yeah a Rita Hayworth character here because <laughs> the character ends up having a very you know dark seductive vibe and i think she would have played into that really well Um, much like uh did you ever see power too (laughs) totally and and did you ever see gilda yes oh yeah yeah. so she could have tapped into that yes Mm -hmm. so i know you're huge into fashion especially of this era so i'm assuming that you loved elizabeth scott's outfit with the beret that we saw towards the end of the film oh yeah oh all of her her looks were really good I always love during this time period when you have the, well, of course, I, I mean, I probably most people do the, the rich ladies because they get to wear just the really out of control outfits. I think the things that really stand out to me is when they're at home and just in their kind of like casual gowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like, there was a scene when Humphrey Bogart came over and she was wearing this you know, floor length, silky, bedazzled (laughs) item. And back then during these types of movies, maybe she wore it out, but it could have just been her dressing gown at home. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They were always super fancy no matter what. (laughs) So over the top. um, Yeah. She had a great, a great wardrobe here. Whoever did the costumes um, did a good job. I liked them. Mm hmm. Now you've admitted you're not a huge Humphrey Bogart fan, but how did you feel about him? In this, you know, <laughs> but how did you feel about him in this particular role? He, he's I've talked about this before. Yeah, he's a great actor, of course, iconic. His roles are, you know, his dialogue, how he, you know, handles himself is great. But yeah, he's not my favorite. <laughs> um, but going back to what this movie called for, I think he was the perfect fit. This is kind this is kind of his type of role, the kind of like average guy who's up to something and he gets involved with a bit of danger. There's some romance. Um yeah, he's a military veteran, so mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got a, a lot going on. But yeah, I think this hit his strong points. I wouldn't say this was the best movie he's ever done it was pretty middle middle of the road but yeah i thought he he did a did a great job with with it so the film is told in flashbacks for the most part yeah yeah do you you enjoy films that do this in general and do you think it worked for this film i do like flashbacks actually Hmm. they're one of my um favorite little tools i love them because i like trying to see how things connect and like, oh, why are we starting at this point? Like, what's going to happen? I like that kind of mystery that is added to it. And I think here it it worked because 
I think this, the plot was a bit convoluted. So having okay. him kind of, we knew he was narrating something. So I think that helped kind of keep it on track and uh, keep it all together. So I thought it did work here. One of the points that I struggled with in this movie was that there was just a lot going on. And mm-hmm. then a lot of things just happened out of convenience. And like, why did he end up in this church with like a right. fellow paratrooper who happens to be the father of like, he had a lot of connections or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't did. know. So it was a little far fetched, but um, yeah, to go back to your question, I did think the the flashback worked for me. I okay. like I like that aspect. What's funny is my next question was, did you think the plot was too convoluted? So there's yes. <laughs> um, and, and that's maybe just a, a, I wouldn't say a problem, but it, it is an issue with film noir. But yeah. even with it being convoluted, did you like the plot? Like, did it keep you interested? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, that is a typical issue with film noir. Maybe they were, you know, you have to come up with new ways to create a plot right they can't all be the same thing even though they are very similar oh yeah um a lot of the similar characters and themes so um i liked the different twists and turns here Mm -hmm. there there were just enough to keep like keep me on my toes and i was able to follow what was going on there weren't too many main characters so I thought that group was, you know, pretty small with just Rip. And then they had great names too. Dusty. Right. <laughs> and the Martinelli, the mobster. Oh, yeah. She went by Mike. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the plot, you know, there were a lot of these. I think, you know, it's to try, to try and distract you from what's really happening. So there were a lot of false things and distractions. And I was confused at a few points. Okay. But yeah, I thought it was entertaining enough and I kind of just had to roll with it. And in the end, I was like, okay, I got this all. It makes sense mm-hmm. for the most part. <laughs> I, I think that's what's good about film noir. While why I like rewatching them is ultimately you're going to pick up new things because there is exactly. a lot going on. So yeah. that's, that's a good thing. So without giving the actual outcome, did you guess the outcome? Yes and no. Looking at this from like a film noir perspective with this murder that took place under kind of mysterious circumstances, I had a feeling there was going to be more to the story, though there was definitely one twist that I didn't see coming at all. Mm -hmm. But looking at it now, it definitely makes sense because when I was watching this movie, that one of the things I was thinking was, how are all these people connected to each other? Right, right. Why is this, you know, nightclub owner, mobster character so involved? And why, you know, why are these things happening at, at, to these people? So it did explain a lot once we got to the ending. And, but in kind of, it was still a little ambiguous. In my opinion, we'll we'll never truly know, I guess, what happened, but That's... we do kind of know. <laughs> so you would recommend this, and you you would rewatch this. I would definitely rewatch it. I think, like, yeah, like you said, when you rewatch these, you pick up new things. Um, and I would definitely 
at least like to rewatch like the first half to kind of see what clues mm. worked it together to get to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I would rewatch it. The there was enough going on that it definitely kept me entertained. <laughs> well, good. Sure. Chalk up another one for me. I think pretty much everything I pick for you, you end up somewhat liking. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. And you know, this wasn't a Oscar worthy. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but. It had kind of a lot of stuff that I enjoy. I like, yeah, this time period is great. I love these kind of post-World War II, late 40s um, kind of sets. And it had that murder at the beginning. I love a good murder mystery. (laughs) That's true. Um, And yeah, Humphrey Bogart, he's a great lead as always. Um, Yeah, The one question I did have was, was is it true that he was just like a taxi driver. Was that his job here? I think they mentioned it. I mean, that's possible. Yeah, he doesn't really work. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, he's just an ex-paratrooper. And then, and then, yeah, they don't really get into his backstory at all. Because I think he just mentions like one off, like, oh, well, when I'm driving the taxis up in like Philly or wherever he's from. And then the whole time I was just thinking, wow, he's got a lot of connections and he's (laughs) a great investigator. Well, yeah, it's almost like, yeah, the backstory doesn't fit. It, it was almost like he's Philip Marlowe again, you know, like in the yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the name is similar. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Rip Murdoch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny. But yeah, it was a it was a charming movie. <laughs> that is the nice thing about I think about older films is it, like, I think people were willing because you couldn't really repeat view these things. You saw them in the theater once or twice or however yeah. many times you want to go, but you weren't going to see this on TV because there was no mm-hmm. TV back then. So now we can look back and like, oh, there's some plot holes here, but uh, but back, they couldn't get away with today, probably. Yeah, yeah, true. You had to yeah just watch it in the movies, but Back then, the movies were cheaper, so. Oh, definitely, and even those. Right. B- <laughs> oh, absolutely, and some of those B movies are really fun to watch too. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this, and I uh, picked another winner for you. Another good one. Okay, we're back with DJ Metal Mike Tyler, my good buddy. is on ThatMetalStation.com every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. Eastern time. He is a regular on this podcast because he's awesome. He's also <laughs> and of classic film. And this is a perfect classic film for to kind of introduce him to, you know, we're going to probably be doing more of these. So this is good. So welcome back, Mike. Hey, it's an honor to be here. But I also want to point out to all the listeners out there, you can also hear me on the plug music and more podcast with Bushy. So make sure you check that out, too, man. We talk about all kinds of stuff, not just mostly music, but Mm -hmm. we will talk about film and sure video games like one of our most highest rated episodes was the one where we had my nephew Kane on. Mm -hmm. Um uh, you know, we had our top 10, I think, or top five video games of all time. And yeah, I, that really blew me away. I didn't, you know, cause Kane was really itching to do that. Um, I'm wanting to have my big brother scapegoat on. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to find the right subject matter for him, but, uh, yeah, really exciting stuff, man. So I know you're a big Bogart fan and, oh yes. Uh, yes. So that's why I was, I picked, I picked this movie it just happened to be the next one I was going to do for him. Had you seen dead reckoning before this? 
No, I have not. This is okay. one that slipped past my radar, Brian. I was like, oh, okay. And I've seen a lot of Bogey's films. Like, I'm mm-hmm. a huge fan. My dad introduced me to Bogey when I was just a kid. And even mm-hmm. as a kid, man, I, I feel like he was kind of the Jack Nicholson of his time. Great he was comparison. just so cool and, mm-hmm. and aloof. And just and the thing about Bogey, and, and when I've seen documentaries, they even mentioned it. A lot of his peers said the thing about Bogey is – you know, acting styles, of course, change over time. You know, people, mm-hmm. m- movies, uh, the filmmaking, um, acting, even live acting, it's all evolved over the years and sure. through the centuries, you know, of time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, back in the day, especially with live acting, the actors are a lot more animated in their performance. And, and on film, it, it comes across as very hammy and overdramatic. And and this gal was talking about, like, Bogart was never that way even when he did stage acting he was always Correct. very very natural and mm-hmm. just kind of you know and i think bogey was kind of one of those guys that you know you got your different styles of acting and hey if whatever you got to do that takes you to get there to do that performance you do you boo you know what i mean whether it's <laughs> method acting or, or if it's a guy to me like i think bogart approached it kind of like the way nicholson does like okay they they do become the character but there's still an essence of them in that character. Right. It's like um, I, I think the way they do it, you know, because back in the day I was an aspiring stand-up comic and I wanted to be an actor, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did the funny bone a few times and actually, I mean, they got really good audience reactions. Um, mm-hmm. Problem was, though, is the manager didn't like some of my material and she basically mm-hmm. dressed me down in front of all the comedians and haven't done stand-up since, you know, because – Unfortunately, the funny bone was really the only game in town where I lived. So, um, but she pissed me off, man. And I, I was like, I'm not going to sell out and compromise. If you want Bill Cosby, go pick him or go book him. Which <laughs> the irony. You don't want that anymore, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, by but, the uh, way, uh, I think I think we have a new saying. Instead of you do boo, you do bogey. Yeah, there you go. You do bogey. Yeah. Yeah, you do you, Bogey. Yeah, Bogey's awesome. But Bogey was very, you know, just natural. And and I think that he probably approached it like, okay, how would I react to these type of events if I was in these situations? And right. I where you got guys like Daniel Day Lewis and hey, I'm not knocking it, you know, the method acting. Hey, well, like I said, whatever works for you, bro. You know, you do sure. you boo yeah just like um christian bale like those type of guys those get even though i i loved when ian said on the rock and metal combat podcast uh during uh i guess uh the special features on marathon man uh yeah dustin went out all night had a bender and all that because he wanted to look really haggard and tired and sir Uh lawrence olivier said my dear boy have you just ever thought about trying acting i'm like that is great man (laughs) you know like you know like come on dude just pretend that's all it is because really ultimately man i I don't mean to disparage him but it's bullshit you're pretending to be somebody you're not exactly that's what's so fun about it we do it as little kids Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's no different so, so, yeah, I think could, Bogart was probably one of the greatest actors of all time. What was you going to say? No doubt. And this leads me to my next question. If you can, uh, what are your top five bogey films? Now, again, I'm putting you on the spot, but. Ooh, I, you know, um, OK, OK. Um, number one, mm-hmm. probably. Man, this is hard. Yeah, because I love all these movies so much. But Casablanca would be number one. OK. Number two would be the Maltese Falcon, or should I say 1A? Because, God, sure. I love that movie, too. Absolutely. Um, Treasure the Sierra Madre. What oh. a performance, man. God, he what was a, great in that. What an and ass. just 
too. Yeah, and just because he starts out as this really sweet, nice guy. Tracy <laughs> Dobbs was a good guy, man. And he loses his fucking mind. It's like, whoa. Like, he was scary in that movie. And it's such a great movie because not only do you have Bogart, you got Walter, Walter Houston, Houston. You got oh, he's still Tim Holt. Yep. Very underrated actor. I always enjoyed his performances in anything I've seen him in. Yep. Uh, just a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. And then after that, probably High Sierra. I really sure. like that movie a lot because he plays a gangster, but it's like a gangster with the heart. It's really before his – it was his last like gangster gangster role before he took off because then Maltese Falcon came next. And then after that, I would say probably a tie between um, uh, the African Queen. Okay. And, uh, oh man, I really like Sabrina a lot, believe it or not, you know, I um, do too. It's kind of a different part for him, but that's part of the reason why I like it. I like that movie a lot. And, uh, as, as honorable mentions, of course, um, I gotta mention, um, oh, another underrated film of his that I thought he was great in was the barefoot Contessa. Yep. Yep. Um, I really like that movie a lot. I mean, there's not very many bogey movies that I that don't does. like, Yeah. You know? yeah um, uh, well, there's a to have and have not and, to have and have not. That was the one I was thinking of where yeah. he first meets the love of his life. Lauren Bacall. That's a good right. movie, too, man. I'm a huge bogey fucking nut swinger, whatever you want to call him. Call <laughs> it. I love him, man. I think he was great. And it's a shame that he died as young as he did yeah. you know, because I, yeah. I definitely think the guy had a lot more to give. You know, uh, but a fantastic actor, and I, and and I mean, Bogey plays a lot of the characters that I always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Like, unfortunately, as much as I mean, I'm probably more like Bogey now as I've gotten older. But I'm the guy that not only falls in love with the girl, mm-hmm. but I'm the Miles Archer guy. I'm the guy who gets shot. I'm the mm-hmm. guy who, you know, that part in Maltese Falcon. He's like, I'm not going to follow in Thursby's, and I don't know how many other footsteps. I would be Thursby, you know what I mean? Like when I was younger, I was that guy, you know, right. as much as I wanted to be the dude that was like, yeah, I wanted, I want to do this. I want to help you, but I'm not going to, because mm-hmm. I know if I do, you're going to fucking kill me more than likely one day. I mean, I, I just, that's one of the reasons why I love Maltese Falcon as much as I do. I mean, Sam Spade is uh and I also feel that Bogart is the quintessential protagonist in film noir. And totally. this movie yeah. mm-hmm. totally confirmed that yeah for me i you know i'm gonna pivot a little bit but i think the obvious thing for this movie is many people recognize that how much elizabeth scott is just the doppelganger to lauren bacall which i'm sure was no accident how did you feel about her performance specifically i thought she was pretty good and you know i gotta be honest with you i wasn't very familiar with her i think Mm -hmm. i might have saw her in a couple of movies when i was a kid but it was like ah you know i thought she did a good job what's ironic about it i did a little research on this and i found out that uh, the original leading lady was supposed to be rita hayworth i'm like ooh, that would have been interesting i would have liked to have seen that i would have i would have definitely liked to seen that because it almost seems like elizabeth was under contract so they're like well bogey's got bacall we're gonna just give like yeah you you can i mean they were both models they both have that um the look and the voice, <laughs> the voice that which is weird because you wouldn't think a husky voice would be attractive on a woman, but, but yet seductive. it works. Yeah. It mm-hmm. is very seductive. It's, it's like seductive. Kathleen Turner. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kathleen Turner was totally in her prime. Yep. Oh, God, I was in love with her. Romance in the Stone. Kid. Yeah. Yep. Not just that, but body heat. Body oh, heat. Lord. Yep. You know, yep. like, yeah, I mean, the classic femme fatale, which is always got to be in every great film noir film. Absolutely. No, that was that was my 
next question for you was like, would you have rather had Rita Hayworth than Elizabeth Scott? Well, you know, it's difficult to say because you just don't know what the final product would have been. I mean, you know, you can play the what if game all you want. I think Elizabeth did just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And she she was good looking lady, man. I'm sitting there going, yeah, I could see why uh, Bogey's buddy had the hots (laughs) for her. Well, even he liked her. You know, it was hard not to, you know, even though, you know, you're like, oh, this this chick's bad news. But, uh, you know, and and I don't know if you've seen it, but have you seen Gilda with Rita Hayward because she played oh, a fantastic yeah. that too. Yes, yeah. uh, with Glenn Ford, classic exactly. movie, man. And, and I mean, Rita Hayworth, what a beautiful woman. Absolutely. You know? Yes, mm-hmm. I think I think Rita would have rocked it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know though. Who knows? Maybe in an alternate reality, there's a Brian Davis and a Mike Tyler talking about. Well, what would the movie have been like with Elizabeth Scott or, you know? or Lauren Bacall? Yeah, <laughs> or Lauren Bacall. You know, I mean, we could all, you know, because you can always play that what if game. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Elizabeth did just fine, man. It, I. Um, to let you know my thoughts in the film, I loved it. I thought it was great. Okay. Mm-hmm. It sucked me in right away. Good. You know, it, it, the way it begins with him, you know, on the run and he looks like he's beat up. I'm like, whoa, what is going on here, man? And just the whole flashback. And um, I thought it was a great movie. I, what One thing I, I loved about it was his relationship with his friend. Like he really cared about that guy. It wasn't yes. just, you know, his, you know, and it was like he was going to do what he had to, to, honor him and avenge his death and man that's it's a beautiful thing to me to me you know you know and i love that line where he tells her i loved him more and i was like hell yeah you know um yeah i really enjoyed the film i thought all the performances were great the guy who played the cop kind of reminded me of barton mcclain from yes. uh, the maltese falcon and uh uh uh, uh oh I just mentioned Treasure of the Sierra Madre, man. But I'm like, man, I thought at first I thought it was Bart McLean, but then I'm like, no, that's not him. But I thought his character was cool. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the film. You know, I liked how the gangster was like this ruthless dude, but yet he had horbed violence. I love that little touch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, it, yeah, the villain kind of looked like Peter Lorre a little bit. He was, did. He did. Yeah. He kind of reminded me of like one of those creep, like just creepy. I'm like, man, dude. Yes. You're kind you of those. out here. Well, you know? I'm glad you brought up the plot. So um, I'm gonna, this is kind of a twofold question. Did So it obviously kept you engaged. Did you find it too confusing or convoluted at times? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I could follow what was going on pretty good, man. I, I You know, I thought it was very – I didn't think it was – you know, like because as much as I like this movie, The Big Sleep is very convoluted. Totally. It's known for it. It's like, whoa, what? what yeah. you know and it's like I, I'm, I'm sure raymond chandler's like what the hell man because it was like it, that cannot be i've never read the book but it cannot be like the book there's just no way no uh, i mean i like the big sleep it's a cool movie i think bogart's great in it lauren bacall's awesome but yeah i was like huh <laughs> i still don't know for sure what happened in that movie you know i'm like well i'm glad i'm glad uh philip marlowe i'm glad <laughs> philip marlowe oh, Marlo, Marlo, yeah, and Marlo. figured it out because i sure as the hell didn't i'm like what <laughs> and it's still even when he figured it out i'm like i, I don't get it but uh, no. anyway, that's a whole other movie yes so this was yeah. yeah this was not i i didn't have any problem following it okay i really liked it and there was just really interesting parts too like i don't know if you know this but mm-hmm. the whole part where he's telling her for one i got a kick out of her always him always calling her mike i'm like okay, right <laughs> that's a little weird i didn't know I what that was all like about that. you know i'm like yeah. oh okay and then the fact that when they're talking and apparently this was something that bogart would espouse in real life especially when he had been drinking about shrinking women into a capsule and mm-hmm. carrying them in your pocket and then taking them out when you i thought that and 
that I thought that whole scene was hilarious. I'm like, oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, a lot of today's uh, feminists wouldn't like no, that at all. No. But different era, different era, different era. So, and, 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 you know, but, but, but. Yes, oh, well, not to interrupt you, but like in general, like, do you like flashback movies? Some people don't. And this I is a love them. Okay. I've always liked flashback movies, man. I don't have a problem with look any way you want to tell your story. Like I remember one of the first complaints when I went to see Pulp Fiction, which, by the way, we just saw at the Wildy here mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. They had it on the big screen. And yeah, I was going to say, hey, dude, you want to go? And Bill and his dad had never seen Pulp Fiction on it. Wow. <laughs> see, I had because yeah, I was already a Tarantino fan from Reservoir Dogs. A buddy sure. of mine had me rent the movie. He worked at a video store. He's like, man, you got to check this movie out. It's awesome. I watched it. Boom. Instantly mm-hmm. loved it. So I was kind of already used to his style. And some people go, well, Tarantino does flashbacks. No, he does not. A flashback is when the character is flashing back to previous events. Right. That is not what happens in Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. No, but in this that movie, is a story. That yeah. Basically, especially um, Pulp Fiction, it's telling three stories that just happened. Well, really four if you count the intro. It's yeah. telling four stories with the same characters. Right. That And yes, they interact and some take place before others, but they are not in sequential order. No. That is not a flashback, man. No. So no. you just got to figure out how everything goes. Yes, where this is a flashback. It's totally. He's in the church. Yeah. The Padre story. Yep. You obviously enjoyed it. I don't think it can rank in the top five for you, but where would it rank like in solid Bogart movies for you? You know, I got to say, man, I'd have to think about it, but I'd put it in my top 10. I really yeah. liked it, man. And I'll probably add it to my collection. I mean, awesome. I liked it that much, man. I was like, so thank you, Mr. Davis, for turning oh. me on to a movie that I don't know why or how slipped past my radar. Cause like I said, I'm a big Bogart fan. I've always been a huge Bogart fan. And, uh, you know, um, anytime you ever want me for a Bogart oh. movie, let me know, dude. No, He's one no of my doubt. all-time favorite actors. Well, Love we do it. have – We I, it's funny and you mentioned this. Coming up in the next year because I, <laughs> uh, I have Sabrina coming up and to have and have not. So there's All right. Cool, fun. man. I'm down. Uh, so to, just to wrap it up, what are, your, so, what are your other takeaways from this film that you had? Um, well, okay. One of the things, and it's, again, it's a film noir thing, but I love how appearances aren't always what they appear to be. Sure. Like, you know, the fact that his buddy just ran out on him and saluted him and he even said, he goes, I got the feeling that that would be the last time I ever saw him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you're, and I remember going, Whoa, what is going on? Like, why is he afraid of this recognition? And then you find out, okay, he killed this dude and the whole time i'm thinking no he didn't there's more to this than meets the eye but again a part of that is my experience of watching these type of films you know but yeah i just but i love that i love the fact that things aren't what they always appear to be and and real life is like that you know everybody's always assume uh quick to condemn or assume things man you know my dad used to tell me as a young boy boy don't ever assume anything because you make an ass out of you and me both you know, <laughs> wise words, Gene Tyler. Just to, without giving it away, were you surprised by the by the ultimate outcome? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. And that's just from experience. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But I still, I mean, I still enjoyed the film. You know, I yeah. Mean, but yeah, I figured. I mean, like again, it's it. You know, you can ca- call it a cliche, but it's just the thing. I mean, they call him the femme fatale for a reason. Sure, sure. You know, I mean, or otherwise she wouldn't have been the femme fatale. You didn't, you didn't see, you ultimately didn't see. I didn't see, see the yeah. ultimate conclusion playing right. out exactly as it did. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that at all uh, coming. Yeah. I, I'm with you. There are certain, well, people have to remember 
about older films. Nobody could have foreseen having, well, one, this is before television, obviously before home video. So these films were all brand new and then they disappeared. So, um, you know, people would watch it once. And so if you followed a certain trope, it, it was fine because, you know, these were just like, you know, you made them, you made a bunch of these, but now you watch, you watch back, you're like, whoa, this movie's a lot like this movie and this movie and this movie, but nobody had foreseen that, you know, we'd be watching these well, movies I eight mean, years later. There's even lines where that kind of, Echo Similar. the Maltese Falcon, where Absolutely. he's like, he, he doesn't say it exactly like he did in Maltese Falcon, but more or less like, I don't know if I can trust you because mm-hmm. I'm not so sure you're not going to take me out. You know, that's I mean, right. and that's kind of what he says in Maltese Falcon, you know, yeah. that, that, yeah, I, you know, I love you and I want to help you. And, but, you know, and, and but there was some differences because, like I said, he told her, but I loved him more. Yes. And, and, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's that was pretty cool. I thought that was pretty because at first I'm going, OK, man, it's getting a little too close to Maltese Falcon, guys. You need to, <laughs> you know, but they get, they get a little close. But then when he said that last line, I'm like, cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Because yeah. it does kind of differentiate from Maltese Falcon. Because remember, Maltese Falcon, he didn't really have the highest opinion of his partner. No, not really. Not at all. You know, actually- I mean, I'm not saying he hated Miles, but he was kind of like, yeah, he's a dumbass you know essentially you know well he's fucking interesting because um, none of the characters are really that likable including him and he's the main character so you know oh well but that's part of the whole detective Absolutely. genre at that time i mean yeah. it was like yeah i mean here through. you're talking about a guy who's literally bane in his partner's wife behind mm-hmm. his back i mean yeah that's kind of skeezy man he still does the right thing he still did the right thing by his partner because like right. he tells her, doesn't matter what you thought of him. He's your partner and That's you're right. supposed to do something about it. And we're in the detective business. And he's right. If if I let you get by with this, it's going to make all my, anybody in my profession look bad. In, in so many words, he said it differently. You know, yeah. I could give you the whole speech cause it's awesome. <laughs> and I love that movie, but I'm not going to, well, um, we know you can. And as always, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm glad I could introduce this film to you. And that's what we do on the podcast. Introduce films to people that they haven't seen or reintroduce films uh, that oh, you saw a long sure. time ago. Yeah. So. And like I said, I hit this one slipped past my radar. So I thank you again, my friend. It was a cool movie. My pleasure. And thanks again, Mike. Anytime, brother. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Captain Video. Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.